Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is episode number 66 of the Tartan Talk series, and we're going to be doing something different on this podcast. We're going to take an extended look into the life and impact of Marion Hollins, who will be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2022. And joining us to discuss what Marion meant to golf course development and golf course architecture are two repeat Tartan Talk guests, our friends Jan Beljan and Forrest Richardson. Jan and Forrest have both studied Marion's work and life extensively, and they are well-versed on what she meant to the game here in the United States. But before we get going with Jan and Forrest, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, which, by the way, the Society named Marion Hollins an honorary member in November of 2021. And also, Better Billy Bunker is a big supporter of the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they're on board, and we're glad that Forrest, Jan, were able to take so much time to join us to talk about an overlooked figure in golf history. Well, Jan and Forrest, it's great to have both of you on the podcast. This is such a great topic. We're going to be discussing Marion Hollins. And the first thing, Jan, just when did you first learn about Marion Hollins or were introduced to her work? And what was your reaction when you started learning more about her? Well, the first I really knew of her was when I played Pasatiempo, which was either in 1987 or 1988. I've forgotten which. And I looked for the scorecard, but couldn't find it. So, you know, remembering that how things appeared, uh, the level of, of maintenance and golf course management, even as recently as the 1980s, is different than we know it today. So it really was looking beyond what you might see as conditioning to actually see design. And, and it was a very impressive uh, experience for me because I hadn't seen anything that's so much considered, especially for a, a female golfer. And that was one of the things that Marion Hollins was known to do was look out for the average woman golfer and, and help her to be better than average. Of course, that was in her era, the 20s and 30s and 40s. And how about you, Forrest? When did you first become familiar with uh, her work and her career? Well, I, I think it was when I was working on the routing book, routing, uh, routing the golf course. I had probably heard the name Marion Hollins before that, but it's, it's when I got into working on that book, which would have been just before 2000, uh, and I compiled this research, and, and I was always really wanted to learn more about Cypress Point because it it always looked to be one of the the greatest golf courses in the world as I was growing up. And uh, so I decided when I wrote that book to include a chapter in Cypress Point, and and I I went and I I got to walk around the course. It was in doing that research that. I became aware of this woman who really, uh, you know, went far beyond Cypress Point. It was an amazing friendship that she had with Samuel Morse. And, um, you know, that's, that's where I got my first inkling of, of uh, Marion Hollins and, and just what she meant to golf and golf course design. She was an incredibly active woman. How big were sports in her life and what particular role did sports and competition play in her life? Jan and I had a, a brief little sharing of, of information on this, but the historian at Passatiempo, Emily uh, Chorba, um, she 
she provided just a little context, then I guess it was really her equestrian pursuits as a young woman uh, that really got Marion into into sports. And Emily reminded us that, you know, these family photos exist of Marion on ponies and horses at a very early age. What's interesting about that is my good friend Jan Belgen has has a very similar upbringing, which Jan, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on, on how what that meant to you, and I'm sure it's similar in some ways to Marion. Well, only similar in the, in the fact that um, as a youngster, I had the privilege of, of um, operating a riding stable. From when I was 12 to 14, I managed between 8 and 28 horses, mules, ponies, donkeys, burros. At the club where my father had designed the golf course was the pro superintendent. What I can tell you is at that time I was uh, about 5'2 and 90 pounds, and I was managing horses that weighed pretty close to a ton you know, 2,000 pounds. So uh, what it takes is a certain amount of fearlessness. And uh, uh, Marion Hollins, um, like you, Forrest, I have had uh, done a lot of research on Marion, and it was rather difficult because until recently there wasn't much written. But she was, she came out of the Gilded Age, and um, her father and her family were friends with the Vanderbilts, and that sort. So she was a Gatsby-era woman, and she had access to not only horses, but also uh, on their on their estate, they had a grass tennis court. Uh, there was shooting, you know, for uh, ducks and other animals, which was part of what happened uh, with those folks in, in that era. She had a pony by the time she was six, and she was doing, she, she um, rode um Hunt seat, you know, so she was doing jumping, she was doing exhibitions with uh, dressage, but uh, probably most importantly, she was uh, highly skilled with what they would call four in hand. So that meant there were four coach horses, and these would be the types of horses that would be close to a ton. And she was driving uh, carriages in tight corners without ever hitting a curb. Uh, she was probably the most skilled driver. And there were clubs for both men drivers and women drivers in that era. And she was renowned for that. And uh, probably even more impressive than that is that she was a polo player. And she was one of the few women who actually held a men's polo handicap, too. And anybody who knows horses or who's been around them uh, understands that very few people allow other people to ride their horses well. Two of the premier male polo players permitted Marion to ride their polo ponies in matches. And uh, let's see, I think it was George, uh, I think it was MacArthur, uh, General MacArthur, who said that this is a paraphrase that nobody has known, um, you know, fear until you're playing high grade polo because you have horses and and uh, polo mallets coming right at your head, not the, let alone the ball. So that, that bespeaks her fearlessness that she then carried on into her competitive ways. And she was a strategist. So the upbringing with sports, and it's true still today for almost everyone, anybody who is, delves into any sport learns a certain amount of discipline and fearlessness and that, that they carry through in, into competition. Yeah, and she goes on to win the 1921 U.S. Amateur. What do we know about how she made the transition from being a high-level athlete into a developer architect. From what I understand is she started playing 
and she reached the age of 10. And she played uh, in amateur golf, and, and golf became, I think, I don't know if it was her first passion or not, but it certainly seems to be. She had an eye illness, and I, and I, I asked her great, great nephew here recently when I got to meet him what he knew about that, and he, he, I think he's still trying to find out exactly what that illness was. There's some theories on it, but anyway, that's what caused her to um, to move out west uh, to Monterey, and she impressed Samuel Morse, who was developing Pebble Beach at the time in the Monterey Peninsula, and she was appointed athletic director of the Pebble Beach Resort. I think it was right at, at that, that moment, the introduction and the friendship that she developed with Samuel Morse was undoubtedly what brought her into the world of building golf courses and golf course design. I think all golfers that are really passionate about golf, I think you've mentioned this before, Guy, you, you know, you, you've dreamt of golf holes and drawing golf holes and everything. And I think people that are passionate about golf have that common denominator is they, they envision golf holes, even if they're never going to be a golf course architect and never going to get the opportunity. Uh, I think people that are passionate about the game uh, have that common denominator. And I'm sure it was no different for Marion. So what a, what a brilliant stroke of luck that she would meet Samuel Morse and the rest kind of became history after that. As you mentioned, Guy, Marion Hollis had defeated Alexis Sterling in 1921 for the U.S. Amateur. Just after that, you know, she was a member at a club that was called the Creek Club, and this was on Long Island. And it turned out that the men there uh, were not happy with having uh, women, mostly their wives, playing the golf course. And doesn't this sound like some things we've heard recently? But anyway, so what happened then was she, they, they opted to uh, close the Creek Club for, to women. And so then there were a number of the women, the wives, who got together and formed their own club, and the leader of that group included Marion Hollins. And Marion Hollins then, and that group decided that they were going to find property, uh, design a golf course, and fund that golf course themselves. So it would be a golf course for women, and women um, only could be members. Men could play, but they needed to be accompanied by a, a woman member as, as a guest. So that happened in 19, or 1922. In 1924, that's when the Women's National Golf and Tennis Club opened. She had worked on this golf course prior to its construction by going to England. She had a very lengthy trip to England, took a, a uh, camera and, and someone who could operate that camera, and she actually filmed golf holes that she thought would be ideal golf holes for women not necessarily for someone like herself, who was one of the longest drivers of the golf ball in her era, but uh, for the average woman so that um, they would enjoy the golf more. And this was very similar to the, the template holes that we know about from McDonald. So she did that, and she had uh, Deborah Emmett and Seth Rayner to do the um, design on the ground and the construction, but she was there daily making sure of how that golf course, how each of those golf holes were laid out. 
she took some holes like it um, uh, from Walton Heath and Northampton. She copied the principal's nose at St. Andrews. Um, and she said, um, uh, then they also went to Long Island and found a couple of holes um, uh, like it, from Westbrook and, and uh, Piping Rock. And one of the other things that she really liked were the small grassy hills near the greens um, that, were, that you can find on links courses. And so she had similar hummocks incorporated as an option to run up play on most of the holes. So even though this wasn't a, a lynx side golf course, she had uh, lynx style elements included in the design. What was interesting about this is it wasn't only a golf course, but it was also a real estate development. And that was one of the very earliest golf courses that had real estate development associated with it. How significant is the Women's National Golf and Tennis Club to the history of golf and golf development? And do you feel like this is an overlooked course in a lot of ways? I, I think it's an overlooked course because it's a course that doesn't exist. Yep. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, that, that would make sense, but you don't hear much conversation about it. No one really talks about it like the Lido and some of the other lost courses. It's way ahead of its time. It was, it was, a, it was a, I, I think what the lesson to be learned, like Jan was hinting at earlier, is that, you know, to think that this was occurring in the early 1920s, that, that there was a golf course that was purposely built for women with women in mind, with uh, holes that that uh, Marion had, had uh, painstakingly, uh, I mean, my goodness, we're out there filming and photographing holes and and, and just getting to Great Britain and the British Isles in, in 1920s was, was no small feat. And, um, you know, she went over there to do what McDonald's had done, but she did it with this eye toward, toward women. So, uh, you know, I, I wish I knew more about uh, the Women's National Golf and Tennis Club. And, and I, you know, it's only been in the last uh, year here since, since I met Tony Grissom, her, her great, great nephew, that um, it really came to my attention. I suppose I'd heard of it before, but um, I think it is one of those forgotten things, which is too bad. Don't you agree, Jan? I mean, it's, it's, it, it, should be, it should be one of the more studied lost uh, courses of our, of our uh, history. Sure, I, I agree with that, but I don't know that there are plans for it in the same way there were plans that we're talking about the Lido Club. And probably the rest of the story, the reason why it doesn't exist is um, a bit sad. Uh, you know, there's a, some interesting information in that, and this is, is in um, David Otterbridge's uh, writings, that, you know, this was done concurrently, pretty much concurrently, the course was, was around concurrent to when the Augusta National was, was being designed and, and created. And, and um, the course was in the hands of women, operated by women, until World War II came upon us. So the story is that in 1941, uh, just, you know, after the Women's uh, National had been open and the Depression was still in place, here's World War II coming, and the um, then, uh, I think, it's president of the Creek Club, which was the club that ousted the women to begin with, um, he suggested that the two clubs merge 
because they were geographically close and then there would be a certain economies of scales and management and equipment, but that each sex would retain their own golf course. Well, there were some misgivings on the part of the women, but because um, many of them had the husbands who were members of the creek and who had ousted them to begin with. Marion Hollins was on, well, she was in California and she was unwell, so she didn't have very much influence in the discussion. So as it turned out, the merger went ahead and then um, the, um, let's see, Gibson, he was the head of the manufacturer's trust, trust, which held a mortgage on the creek property, and that mortgage was coming due. So the governors of the creek took the easy way out, but not very honorable, and they um, sold the entire property to the Women's National Golf and Tennis Club and used the proceeds to pay off their mortgage. Uh, the women were then allowed to be um, members, but, you know, um, it became the, so the former Women's National was modified and lengthened, and it's now called the Glenhead Country Club. So I think we could probably find some remnants of some of the original tees and some of the original greens in the routing, but I haven't investigated that. How many people were thinking about the link between golf and real estate before Marion Hollins, if anybody was thinking about it before Marion Hollins? Well, I don't, I, I don't know. Forrest, do you? Have, you? have you seen any research on that? I, I haven't checked that one out, but well, it's, it's, it's a good question. There's examples in, in the 1920s of, of courses that I think were, I mean, well, if you if you really stretch your imagination, I mean, the the time that golf courses started to meet up and kiss the edge of cities and towns and where people live can be seen in places like St. Andrews, where the, you know, the town was coming closer to the sea and the golf was so popular that it was growing just beyond the old course into uh, the new course and the Jubilee and whatever. But that that certainly wasn't purposeful. It was it was just sort of a happenstance, uh, you know, in, in what we would consider the ancient times of golf. But I, I would guess that it was in that early 1910s to 1920s when you begin to see golf in the United States, especially become. It was the boom period when golf was becoming extremely popular. All of these Scottish club makers and professionals were coming to the United States at the turn of the century to lay out golf courses and make clubs and make balls and teach people how to play the game. The Duns, for example, uh, you know, all the, uh, the Watsons and the list goes on and on and on and on. And I think that it just was an evolution. However, I would say that Pasatiempo and Samuel Morse's vision were probably among the earliest of purposeful let's build golf and also create a village. Um, Pinehurst, of course, would be an example. But, you know, they, they were far and few between, but it was the tip of the ice. And, of course, the, the biggest difference that we all know today is that these golf courses were largely core in shape. You know, they were rectangles or ovals for the most part. Um, Pebble Beach is is an anomaly in that regard in that it does have those home lots and things that, that are scattered about it. But what happened later on after World War II was that those community courses started to take advantage of the frontage 
and we ended up with all of these single golf holes winding through communities or double double golf fairways with houses on either side. And I think that there's a return in a certain way. I'm getting a little off topic here, but there's a return in a certain way to some of the design hallmarks that you saw uh, in, in some of these early courses like Pasatiempo and Pebble Beach, uh, Cypress Point, where the golf came first, uh, and then, you, you know, you wove some houses through and around the golf, but not to the extent that we did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when it really, really, really was packing all the houses in and getting as much frontage along the golf course as possible. And, of course, most of us agree there are exceptions that came out really well, but most of us agree that the golf got compromised with that. Well, to, to that uh, point, Forrest, you know, uh, Samuel Morris had completed Pebble Beach in 1919. So by the time that um, Aaron Hollins got there in 1926, the, the course, and, and it was the resort. And as you, as you noted, he hired her as the athletic director, which, of course, which doesn't mean... Um, what it means today. What it meant then was that she would be the person who would who would um, be in charge of real estate sales and organizing competitions for the Pebble Beach, for Pebble Beach. And so she was the one who initiated the Pebble Beach Championship for both men and for women. And she was the winner, I think, of eight. At least, I think it was at least eight times of that very championship. But having things for people to do was what the athletic director was in charge of. And because of her, her early background and what she knew about sports, and she was not just a, um, an equestrian, but she was also a noted swimmer and tennis player, as well as, as I mentioned before, she's a, a, a polo player. So she had um, a very broad, uh, she had a, a, a wide range of experience in quite a number of sports. And that helped her understand and to cater to the people whom Samuel Morris uh, was willing to uh, entice to Pebble Beach. So I, I think that's that's important too. Just knowing, as you said, 1919, if Pebble Beach is is already uh, completed as a golf course and the resort is underway, then certainly that preceded what Marion Hollins had done for the. Women's National Golf and Tennis Club. You know, when I say tennis club, I should fail to mention that that the ten, that uh, she had um, 22 uh, tennis courts there, and 11 of them were grass courts. So that was pretty remarkable for uh, 1924. Yeah, that leads into my next question: How common was it back then to pull into a, a country club and see a golf course, pool, tennis court, and all the amenities that we see today? My easy answer to that is, think of the title, Country Club. Yep. Where were the clubs in the country? So if you're in the country, there, it was uh, uh, providing the amusements. Uh, and depending on where you were, it would commonly be more than uh, one season. It would probably be at least three seasons, spring through fall. And so there would be shooting and there would be swimming and whether it was in a pool or it was in a, uh, a pond or a lake, um, there would be hiking and horseback riding and archery. Um, so those are the kinds of things that were expected 
in, in that era if you were in the country. And as Forrest alluded to before, uh, the uh, transportation to get from here to there prior to the automobile being common was by horse, horse power. So it would take longer to get to any of those places. So it was usually an overnight or more than an overnight um, just from the um, uh, amount of time it took to get to, to some place. So they often had cottages, villages, rooms, houses um, mm-hmm. for, for people who would come and stay. What do we know about Marion's personality and how comfortable was she around business leaders and other influencers of her era? Well, remember her background. And her father was a financier. You know, he was, um, he and his friends were all um, of that same upper echelon, knowing people like the Vanderbilts. And so um, he would take Marion with him when he would have meetings with some of his friends and not that she would be participating in them because she was a youngster. She might have been, uh, you know, adolescent, pre-adolescent. But just like any of us, when we traveled with adults in those young ages, we kind of learned by osmosis. And then it's also in that era, there was a lot of, there were a lot of, um, uh, there was a lot of entertainment and there was it was kind of prescribed entertainment, so prescribed in, in dress and in manners and formality. So those are the things that she learned that, that, that were just part of her life as she grew up. Other people might have to learn those things, and it's not that she wasn't taught, but she was taught by her parents and by the people around her how to have um, um, poise and to be a conversationalist. And she was also a very intelligent woman, so these came... These things came very quickly to her, so I think she had no, no problems dealing with, with anybody from the perspective of being, um, of discussing finance or plans. But because she was an enthusiast and she was um, a bubbly kind of person, a positive person, people liked being around her. So by the time she got to uh, Pebble Beach, and then she had the um, the uh, concept of, of uh, Cypress Point when she found the land and she pointed it out to Samuel Morris as be a great place for a private club that um, uh, the, the movie stars of the era and the golfers of the era, you know, Babe Dietrichson learned a lot from, from uh, Marion Hollins about many things, um, in life and golf both. So um, she had no problem dealing with everybody, but, you know, some of the stories that I read indicate that she would often prefer to be out with the caddies or with the footmen than, than be with some of the, the other folks who were um, invited to certain of the parties. So she was quite willing to, she, she crossed the um, socioeconomic divide, let's say. Well, I think also she, you know, what I remember hearing from Emily and, and uh, being related uh, from her great-great-nephew is, by all accounts, she she was in a man's world, but she had such a different perspective on things. Being a woman, she was, uh, I think Emily made the comment that, that she, even though she loved sports and she loved the pursuit of athletics, she was always more interested in, I think the words that Emily used was fortifying the uh, the opponents and the people that were playing. So 
So she she was a giving, caring, uh, a coach. I would I would think very much. If you were to describe her, I think that the word coach might come up. That she was always trying to make other people better, uh, whether it was during a match or introducing them to sports. And the other thing that um, that came up when I was was at Cypress Point here just recently was looking through the scrapbook. You can tell, as Jan pointed out, that she was a great hostess, loved to throw parties, knew how to do that because that was part of her upbringing. Uh, but Emily described her as jovial and laughing and constantly uh, portraying that helpful presence. So it, it was, a, I'm sure, a very, very interesting time, obviously, and she was a remarkable person. Uh, to to be in that world and yet not be perhaps you know she knew the Vanderbilts she knew that the you know the uh, all these famous uh, families the Crockers and, and the list goes on and on and on but she wasn't in the man's world per se that she was actually competing and being the quote unquote ruthless. Um, you know, leader of the great big banking company or whatever. She was, she knew that world, but she was uh, doing something far different with all of the things of her upbringing. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say, Jan, that sort of would, would yeah. be an interesting, an interesting position to be in where you knew all of these things in business and finance and, and whatever, but you were taking what you learned and uh, passing it on to, to people. And like Jan says, enjoyed being with the caddies and, and the people that weren't necessarily uh, the people that she would have grown up with. So to that end, yes, Horace, you're 100% correct. You know, again, other information that I've been able to find is that, you know, when World War One was coming along, she had won quite a number of tournaments in her youth. And in those days, they didn't use the the kinds of materials that we might use today for a um, for trophies. They were real silver trophies, and she donated 38 of her trophies to the to the cause of World War One. She also signed up for the Red Cross, and she was doing um, you know uh, wrapping bandages for the war effort. And uh, so that that bespeaks you know her her kind of uh, philanthropic uh, personality, but. And then beyond that, you know, when there are a number of people, women, who had, uh, who were quoted saying that, oh, I played against Marion and, and, and she was supporting me throughout. She wasn't trying to, there was no gamesmanship about her. And to, to uh, support what you had just said, Forrest, is that, yes, she was fortifying other people, even if they were her opponents. She did the best to help them be the best they were, which in and of itself is remarkable. We don't see so much, although I will say that I think I, I know that Phil Mickelson had done a bit of that recently. Uh, I don't know that. That's what I read. But uh, it's probably very true that you want to, if you want to play against the best, then you help them be their best. And I think that was the kind of person that she was. Where, when, and how did she link up with Alistair McKenzie? She came out west, wasn't it? I mean, that was... That was uh... Yes. She was at Pebble Beach. And she had met him when she was working at Pebble Beach, and he had he met her, and independently, 
that had very similar design philosophies for golf. And uh, it was when uh, she knew of him. I don't know exactly when she met him, but it was when um, her choice uh, for doing the design work at Cypress Point died of, of pneumonia. Um, that was that was going to be Seth Rayner. That she recommended Alistair McKenzie to do Pasatiempo, and that's when they started spending a lot of time together. But I don't know when they first met, or how she was. She being a golfer, I'm sure she she knew what he was doing, even in a world of um, few telephones and certainly no cell phones. Well, I think what's interesting to me has been, you know, I, I, I think earlier, Guy, we were talking about how she got into golf course design, and, and obviously it, it all began when, when she studied the holes and, and developed the Women's National Golf and Tennis Club. But I think in, in many ways, just like Robert Hunter, there are so many similarities uh, that, that between Marion Hollins and Robert Hunter in that, in that they both got into golf course design by being completely, uh, you know, smitten with the, the sport itself. And they, they founded golf clubs. And it was, you know, Robert Hunter, you know, he founded the Berkeley Country Club in 1921, and he had been a fan of golf course design and probably thought a lot about golf course design, but in, in 1920 is when he began dabbling in this idea to, to form a club, just like Marion had done, you know, back at the uh, at the uh, Women's National Golf and Tennis Club. And it was from that experience that I think both of them gravitated into actually designing golf courses and having a bigger say in them. And it's it's also interesting that both of them uh, ended up with Alistair McKenzie. So we've talked about the Women's National Golf and Tennis Club in Cypress Point, but how much did Pasatiempo mean to Marion Hollins? Well, gosh, it meant everything to her because it was her it was her whole project. And Jan, I'll kind of let you um, go with that because I know you know so much about that part of her life. You know, she had she found the property, uh, Forrest and Guy. She found the property, and she wanted to to uh, build something there. Money was tight for a while, excuse me, but she ended up having a um, she made an investment in oil, and she ended up getting um, two and a half million dollars out of that investment when the when the oil well um, came through. So, the, with that, she she bought the the property, and then she started the design work for Pasachampo and what was really interesting to me is not only did she have did she have um, Alistair McKenzie, but she also had the Olmstead brothers do a layout for uh, as in Frederick Law Olmstead as in the founder of um, American Society, you know, landscape architecture as we know it today, um, to do the layout there. So that was uh, that was pretty important because she recognized that what was going to help support the club was going to be the real estate and the people who lived around the real estate. That's what would make the project successful. So Pasatiempo meant so much to her that when the course was finally done and she had um, uh, buildings there, overnight buildings, 
where people could stay. The parties that she held there were quite lavish, and, and uh, it, anybody who was somebody was happy to be there. And there were many people who took advantage of it, who were down on their luck or who were just America's guests. And she didn't mind. She came and and, and um, provided for in the, in the best way that she knew how. So it was it was her life's blood. It's, it meant everything to her. And but she spent so much looking after other people that by the time the depression was waning, you know, we're getting into World War Two, uh, that her funds had been pretty much depleted. So she had to sell some property that she had owned because some of the some of the payments she took were in were in kind were in property, and she had amassed quite a substantial uh, amount of acreage in that area. So she had to sell some of that just to keep things going. And she didn't pay attention to her to her banker, her auditor, her her accountant, unfortunately. But um, anyway, the, it meant everything to her, and and she was she lived there until. It was foreclosed upon, and then Samuel Morris provided a job for her, and she worked with him again after that. But she she lived there, and actually, what's uh, probably equally important is that Pasatiempo was the last residence of Alistair McKenzie. What do each of you learn about golf course architecture whenever you get a chance to see Cypress Point and Pasatiempo? First of all, I never get enough opportunities to see Cypress Point and Pasatiempo's certainly uh, on my list to visit when I can as well. But to, for me, it's I think Cypress Point is an interesting subject in that it breaks so many rules. You know, it doesn't have, uh, it has back-to-back par threes. It, it doesn't return at the end of nine holes. It, it, um, it has sort of an odd combination of, poles and, and pars. It's it's um, it's a course that was created for the land that it sits on, um, and yet there were things manufactured there as well. So it's it's sort of a an interesting case that I mean you you know you could go on and on with some of the rules that Cypress Point breaks. I mean you you walk from fourteen to fifteen across a busy road. And the 15 tees are certainly not, um, you know, near the, the 14th green. And, um, and yet it's the most beautiful walk in golf. It isn't bad crossing a road either because, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful road. And as you're crossing that road, you're seeing the crashing waves and hearing the seals. It, it's just, to me, Cyprus is a, is a, it's a subject that more and more people should take interest in. It's not a long course either. It's a very short golf course. It lives up to the theory that this game should be about how near and not how far. Um, and it wasn't a very long course, by the way, when it first opened. It, again, was a golf course built to fit on a piece of land, and, and there was a vision for it. And I think every hole at Cyprus uh, has a personality. You know, they're all different. 15 isn't at all like 16, even though they're both on the ocean. And the inland holes um, couldn't be more different than one another, yet they're all in the same little meadow, basically. What about you, Jan? Well, I'd say that um, from what I've learned is that the course was 
site was originally sand dunes, and so they really did have to bring in some other soil. But uh, and even though we're looking at the the golf course so many decades later after the construction, it's it, it, even then the photographs indicate that it blends in, it tied in, that it looks like the golf course was found and not created. And that goes to your point is um, um, everything looks different. And although much of it was, was created and, you know, and again, Robert Hunter and his son, Robert Jr. were both, um, they were on site there doing the actual construction. So to have, to have had the eyes, the sets of eyes of Alistair McKenzie, Marion Hollins, and Robert Hunter, and Robert Hunter Jr. all on that property to make sure something like that happened. And I, I think that's what's most notable. But even if you don't know the history to that end, you can look at the, any of the golf holes and say, it, it does look like it was found. And, and I think that's probably... It's the nuances and it's how did they find this and how much of it was created to, to try to um, pull out the, the, the distinction between the two, I think, is pretty difficult. So um, I think that what Forrest said, I like the way Forrest said it, everything, every hole is different, even if they have kind of a similar location. Every hole is different and memorable. Do we know if... Marion Hollins had a, a design style or design preferences? I think I mentioned earlier that she had talked about I mean, the, the design style that she had was very similar to, oh, probably to, to what Alistair McKenzie had. And, you know, thinking yep. back about McKenzie and his 13 rules, those were very similar. And she had stated those, uh, you know, like 10 years before he wrote those. Um, that's, you know, when she was working on the, on the, um, Women's National Golf and Tennis Club. Those are the kinds of ideals that she had. Um, she proposed for the design of that golf course. Mm -hmm. I would say also fairness would would probably be, uh, and, and fairness is a, a, an interesting word in golf because there are some purists of golf architecture that that uh, don't think that the word fairness should, should be uh, necessarily applied to golf course design. When Mark Fine and I wrote uh, the bunkers uh, pits and other hazards book uh, there's there's a i think a chapter on fairness that uh, that that we attempted to explain how fairness should be applied to golf courses but i think in marion's case from what i know these ideals that golf courses should be built to accommodate different players and different levels of players gets back to this whole notion of fortifying your opponent and people that you're that you're competing with and and I would say that that probably would be a common denominator I can I can imagine from what I've read and from what I've learned that she was a person who in her whenever she might have opined on a golf course design and Paso Tiempo I think embodies this very very well um, that is a golf course that can be played by high handicap, less skilled golfer, as long as they're playing from the right locations on holes. It can be played very well, and it can be outmaneuvered. Uh, and and I think that those 
qualities were probably inherent in Cypress Point in the very beginning, I'm sure, to a large degree, because Marion insisted on it. And uh, and I would guess that, um, you know, well, her, you know, her vision for the 16th hole at Cypress Point uh, was that there, you know, if you really dissect it, that what she was really saying is there are many ways to play this hole, and you don't have to hit it straight to the to the target. You can you can inch yourself to the left from the tees to have a easier, more safe play. The the reward of being right at the target, of course, is getting to the target in one stroke. And the 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 the, uh, <laughs> the penalty, if you will, for taking the safe route is that you're now striving for bogey. But you have to remember at the time, and we've, we've sort of lost this, but, you know, a bogey score at the time was the way that a lot of golf courses were being thought of. In other words, on what holes would the average person make a bogey? And, and you know, old scorecards will show the bogey score. So, but my guess is, Jan, you elaborate on this, but my guess is that Marion was all about fairness and options and, um, and probably was, I would guess, from playing Pasatiempo and being there several times, that it was also about accuracy, that the premium should be on the accuracy, not necessarily brute strength or power or muscle. Well, you're right, Forrest. That's, that's true. I mean, the, the readings that I have done, the, the different research that I've found on her was that, yes, yeah, she wanted to have several ways to play a golf hole um, depending on the, the skill level, and you know, part of what anyone's skill level, and most of us don't think of our even ourselves this way. I believe is that we might believe our skill level is greater than it really is. So perhaps we we choose an option that really isn't the one we should, but we do it anyway, and we either uh, reap the reap the benefit or or or, or the um, penalty. So, but but you're right. Yes, she she did design for, and that was part of what she did. Why those? Why it was important for her when she visited England to find the golf holes that she thought were ideal for women. Because, as in that era, probably even more so than now, the um, disparity between the better women golfers and the and the newer golfers was greater. Because the you know today you can buy clubs and and um, golf balls that can suit a certain game. And those who hadn't played before, if they can make connection, they can at least advance the ball a little farther than you could with a hickory hickory shaft and a gutter percha. So that was really important to, to Marion. And well, the other thing that was important to Marion was uh, instruction. And she brought Ernest Jones over from England. When she was on that trip, she met Ernest Jones, who had lost a leg in um, World War One, and so he had to reteach himself. He was a, a, a plus two player at the time uh, be, before he went to war, and in order to play a certain skill again, he had to teach himself how to play differently. But what he also found, and I guess it was his first tournament that he played in after he came back from the war, it was before he had a prosthetic, he played on crutches, and it was just too much for him to go 18 holes to walk 18 holes on crutches, so he gave up, and that's when he decided to become a, a teacher. And so he's still now regarded as one of the finest instructors ever. 
I agree. Fairness was, was important to her, and part of fairness was in learning how to play the game. What role did she have in the creation of Augusta National Golf Club? As I always understood it, I think, Dan, was that she made the, the recommendation uh, that that that, uh, that that should be at the hands of Alice Kinsey. Is that how it happened? Yes, that is how it happened. How that happened was kind of the, um, you know, the, the serendipity of life. Bobby Jones was playing in an event, uh, and this was a, a match play, and he lost to an underdog uh, early. And uh, so he, he was there. He had an extra day. And he ended up playing Cypress Point. And Alistair McKendry and, and Marion Hollins happened to be there on that day. Just, I don't know, it was by half a cent. I don't know that they knew he was going to play there that day, but they happened to be there. And the uh, Hollins and Jones played together, and McKenzie was there. So they spent, uh, and they're walking, so, and they're walking together. So they're talking and walking and talking and playing golf. And so I think that... Uh, you know, the, the, I think it's speculated, and it's probably accurate, that there was a meeting of the minds, a true meeting of the minds and philosophy. So when Bobby Jones and, Robert, and Cliff Roberts, who had already found the land and they were looking to build a renowned golf course there, his choice was uh, Alice Dermackenzie, even though, even though Robert Tyre Jones knew Donald Ross, and, and he was kind of surrounded by a lot of Ross courses in the Carolinas, it was McKenzie who he who he chose, and then the other part that was pretty interesting is after that round of golf, the next day Pasatiempo was having its grand opening, and Marion invited uh, Robert Tyre Jones to come and play, and the two of them played an exhibition in front of three thousand people at Pasatiempo, and of course McKenzie was there, so I think that probably further sealed uh, the relationship. Do we know if she played a part in developing any? Other golf courses than the four we've discussed here. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any. I, I know that that they're especially in the Monterey Peninsula, where doing a little bit of work now on a on an old course. That uh, what we've found and what you what you find going on out on the Monterey Peninsula back in the early 1900s when Samuel Morse got there is that almost everything is sort of intertwined from that era. So, you know, you had Peter Hay, who was the pro at Pebble Beach. He was consulting and giving his opinions on different sites for golf courses. And um, Robert Hunter looked at other sites, uh, you know, throughout the Monterey Peninsula over time, I'm sure on behalf of McKenzie. It wouldn't surprise me if Marion had her hands in some of this stuff, but I've, I've never run across anything in specific. The, the only ones I know of were the, were the ones we've talked about. And like you, um, as far as I've ever seen, but it, I think it's because of Pasatiempo, by the time that was done, I remember she had probably a good 10 years of Pasatiempo before it wasn't any longer, and then she had the, the terrible accident that uh, caused her illness, and then... Um, you know, she died of cancer early, so she was only 52, I think, when she died. So she wasn't around long enough to do any more once the economy got better. Jan, what type of inspiration is Marion Hollins, and what do you pull from her when you think about her career and how it's influenced your career? What impressed me most, and I think what's influenced me most, is that 
she was respected by the men and women with whom she played golf. Mm-hmm. And as importantly, or maybe more importantly, the men who hired her and the men she hired. So when Samuel Morris hired her, he hired her because he respected her. He respected her for her knowledge and uh, for her ability to think differently to, uh, and to get things done and to engage with other people. And then the men she hired, Alistair McKenzie and the Olmsteads, admired her because she had knowledge enough. She was competent in what she, she was beyond competent in, in her um, ability to both uh, design and finance. And, and probably additionally, get other people to come and participate at the, at the venues where, uh, in which she was involved. So it does say that all of those things, and it's regardless of the fact of, you know, of her upbringing and, her, and where she was born and how privileged she was, she made the most of what she was given. So all of her talents, she could have, uh, and I say this because some of the writings indicate that she, of the four, of, of her three other siblings, uh, twin brothers and another brother, she was the most successful of the four of them uh, because she applied herself. She did the most with what she was, with what she was gifted. So I think that's probably, we can all take, we can all take that to heart is that whatever you have, make the most of it. And, and that's important to me. So that and the respect and the vision and the knowledge are all important as well. Something awesome happened here recently. The American Society of Golf Course Architects made Marion Hollins a honorary member uh, both of you are past ASGCA presidents. What went into that decision? And that's an honor that's certainly not taken lightly by the society. What happened is that Tony Grissom, Marion's great-great-nephew, called me up one day uh, and and basically explained that he always knew his aunt Marion, you know, of her fame, and but he of course, never knew her in, in person, but he he knew of her fame. And so he decided one day to go visit her gravesite uh, as she is interred at Monterey Cemetery. And uh, he couldn't find it. He spent quite a bit of time and finally found the, the gravesite. And there was a very simple marker. And all it said was Marion Hollins and the year of her birth and the year of her death. And there was no mention of this great woman and her accomplishments in golf and sport and development uh, and all the things we've talked about. And he was just astounded, and he couldn't believe that was the case. So he started uh, on a mission to right that wrong and to uh, create in this part of the cemetery an appropriate uh, monument and uh, homage to her life. And he was asking for my advice on support. And so Jan and uh, several other of hers helped and made donations. And we got the word out. And uh, we helped get the word out. Tony was doing a great job on his own. Uh, by that time, he had received help from Pasatiempo. Uh, and he had received help from Cypress Point. He is in the finishing lap, if you will, 
of completing his fundraising for that. And it was, it was during that process uh, that I consulted with Jan and I consulted with our other leaders in the society. And uh, I thought to myself, well, you know, we've bestowed honorary memberships before. First, first of all, all of our Donald Ross Award winners over the years are, are made honorary members of the society. But we have bestowed honorary membership uh, member status to people uh, in the past. And I just felt it was something that maybe we could start doing. And, uh, and I really felt that Marion had not, uh, even to this day, I don't think she's received the recognition that she deserves in golf. Now, she's going to be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. She's now an honorary member of the ASGCA. You're doing a podcast. Things are starting to happen. And it's all because of this, this visit that Tony made to her gravesite. And by the way, the, the simple little gravestone that was there has now been replaced and there's a bench in place and there's some trees being planted and all sorts of things. And you can visit Tony's uh, website that he has, which is marionhollins.org, Marion, H-O-L-L-I-N-S.org. And that will give you not only plenty to read about her, but an opportunity to to also contribute a little bit to help in what he's doing. But the gravestone that was replaced, the one, the, the old one, is now at Cypress Point, and they are undergoing a, a significant remodel of their clubhouse, which is uh, long overdue, uh, and the club is very excited about it. And they've built a terrace uh, behind the clubhouse now, which is the Hollands Terrace, and in the cornerstone of that, uh, in, in the, the brickwork below that terrace, the original gravestone of Marion Hollins. And, uh, so it's a, it's a, a very warm story, uh, of a great, great nephew who simply set out to, you know, to find out where his famous great, great aunt was, was buried. And look what's happened since then. What a remarkable series of events. And Tony's so passionate about it and so thankful, by the way. Uh, but it's, it's just become a, a turning point in his life where he really feels that he's doing something to honor his family and, and Marion's legacy. Last thing here, and this is for both of you, and we'll go with Jan first. What would you ask Marion if she was still around today and was at an ASGCA meeting? What would you talk to her about, Jan? I think I would ask her two questions. I would ask, what were her successes and failures in the 1920s and 30s? And if she were still living today, how different is today from then? What can we, what can we apply today that she applied then to golf course design? How much different is it even though change in the in golf clubs and golf balls, maintenance equipment as well as playing equipment. I, I just wonder how she would, uh, what she would think about things because she was one of the longest women hitters of her era. And uh, yet she was thoughtful about everybody then. Would she still be the same today? And how about you, Forrest? Well, I'd probably ask her about uh, anything she could tell me about Robert Hunter because uh, uh, I, um, 
you know, I have had the honor and privilege to work on the old, only Robert Hunter solo design ever, which is Berkeley Country Club, and and do the restoration of that. And um, I've, I've I've done so much reading and research and um, trying to fill in the the, the 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 holes about Robert Hunter um, that I would probably want to get into a discussion of just what was he like and and what could she tell me about him because he was a a very very interesting person uh, best-selling author and by the way nothing to do with golf a professor a golf fanatic a uh, person who went through depression and yet you know look what he was able to do you know he brought to life Alistair McKenzie's greatest work on this continent. And so that would be my, my most interesting thing. And then I think, Jan, you hit it on the head. It would be, it would be wonderful to say, well, what do you think about what we've done? <laughs> you know, what, just what's your opinion, Marion, of, of these, uh, 10,000 golf courses that we've built, uh, you know, since World War II? What, what do you think about them? That would be a fascinating conversation, of course, that we'll not get that opportunity. But what a what a wonderful thing to imagine is having Marion Holland's presence, you know, at a ASGCA meeting uh, to share stories and, and talk about golf and to give us her insight into either things we've done right or things we've done wrong or directions we should go or directions we should avoid. And I think that would be fascinating. Wow. Well, I had high expectations for this podcast because I knew uh, we had two terrific guests, and Jan and Forrest, you both totally exceeded those expectations. Thanks for taking so much time. This, I think, is going to end up being the longest Tartan Talks, and I uh, really appreciate both of you talking so much and so elegantly about such an amazing person and contributor to golf. Thank you for having us, and please let me remind everybody that it's really important if you've enjoyed listening to this, please go to Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N, Hollins, H-O-L-L-I-N-S, dot org, and see what Marion was like, look at her photographs, and read a little bit more about her, and and please help us uh, continue her legacy by offering some some uh, contribution to her legacy.